Welcome to the historic Ocean House, a luxurious hotel that pays homage to New England's golden age of hospitality. With timeless elegance and renewed civility, this treasured resort is the setting for our special broadcast of the Ocean House Author Series. Each program features nationally best-selling and award-winning authors in a salon-style conversation, hosted by Ocean House owner, actress, and best-selling author, Deborah Goodrich-Royce. You'll hear fascinating conversations with exceptional authors like Chloe Milos, Avery Carpenter, Patty Callahan-Henry, Victoria Christopher-Murray, Kitty Couric, and more. WCRI is pleased to partner with the Ocean House to present this ongoing series, which brings you the best and the brightest of the literary world. Now, let's take you to the Ocean House. Hello and welcome everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for tonight's event. Chris Bojalian is the number one New York Times bestselling author of 23 books, including Hour of the Witch, The Red Lotus, Midwives, and The Flight Attendant, which has been made into an HBO Max limited series starring Kaylee Cuoco. His other books include The Guest Room, Close Your Eyes, Hold Hands, The Sandcastle Girls, Skeletons at the Feast, and The Double Bind. His novels, Secrets of Eden, Midwives, and Past the Bleachers, were made into movies, and his work has been translated into more than 35 languages. He is also a playwright. His plays are Wingspan and Midwives. He lives in Vermont and can be found at chrisbojalian.com or on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Litzy, and Goodreads at chrisbojalian. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Yep. Here is what number one New York Times bestselling author Jody Picot had to say about The Lioness. The best possible combination of Hemingway and Agatha Christie, a gorgeously written story about the landscape and risks of Africa, whose edge-of-your-seat plot makes it impossible to put down. Chris will be in conversation tonight with Deborah Goodrich-Royce. Deborah's thrillers examine puzzles of identity. Reef Road hit Publishers Weekly's bestseller list, Good Morning America's top 15 list, and was an Indie Next pick by the American Booksellers Association for January 2023. Ruby Falls won the Zibby Award for Best Plot Twist in 2021, and Finding Mrs. Ford was hailed by Forbes, Book Riot, and Good Morning America's Best of list in 2019. She began as an actress on All My Children and in multiple films before transitioning to the role of story editor at Miramax Films, developing Emma and early versions of Chicago and A Wrinkle in Time. With her husband Chuck, Deborah restored the Avon Theater, Ocean House Hotel, Deer Mountain Inn, the United Theater, and numerous Main Street revitalization projects in Rhode Island and the Catskills. She serves on multiple governing and advisory boards and holds a bachelor's degree in modern foreign languages and an honorary doctorate of humane letters from Lake Erie College. Chris and Deborah will now discuss Chris's latest novel, The Lioness, and after that, we will open it up to some questions from the audience. And now, without any further ado, please join me in welcoming Chris Bojalian and Deborah Goodrich Royce. Thank you, Lindsay, and thank you all, and Chris especially. Chris may have driven the farthest, but I, I've met people here. There are people from Westchester County, New York. Anybody else come farther than that? All right. Oh, California. I met you. Where did you come from? Maryland. And you? Well, that makes me so happy. I mean, that's one of the reasons we do this, obviously. Absolutely. It is such an opportunity to meet authors like Chris. So thank you for Deborah, coming. Deborah, thank you for doing this. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So give us your elevator pitch, or a little bit longer than that, on The Lioness, for anybody who hasn't read it. The Lioness, 
Imagine Evelyn Hugo meets Jurassic Park. <laughs> It is 1964, and Hollywood's biggest star, imagine Natalie Wood or Elizabeth Taylor, finally gets married and brings her entire entourage with her into the Serengeti on a honeymoon safari where it all goes to hell quickly, and it's only a matter of time before either Russian mercenaries, leopards, hyenas, snakes, or poisonous trees may get them all. That's excellent. Well said. You've done that before. I have. So, all right, we can go in any direction here, but what I'd like to first start with is why specifically Hollywood? I know that you've had multiple books made into films, and I, the flight attendant was just beyond, beyond, Thank beyond. You. It was so good. It was all Kaylee Cuoco, not me. <laughs> I don't know about that. But, so was that like part of the appeal, or was it a deterrent, or... Did you have to overcome horror to, to go forward with Hollywood? Talk a little bit about that. Oh, I love TV. I love movies. I love. I mean, I, I do. I just love them. In the summer of 2019, we were workshopping my play Midwives, and Monday is the Actors' Equity Day Off, so I decided to go for a movie matinee. And we all know that feeling when you emerge from the air-conditioned dark of a movie matinee in August into the cerulean skies and blistering summer sun. And I thought to myself, my gosh, I love movies. Why have I never written a Hollywood novel? But I knew even in 2019, pre-pandemic, that it was going to be historical fiction because this was New York City and I was the only human being in that theater. The fact is, if it is nor, not um, Barbenheimer, you know, the movies are still, still not packed. And so I thought, okay, historical fiction. I've never set a book in my childhood. I grew up in the 1960s and 1970s, one of Hollywood's golden eras. People just a teeny bit older than me. First movie they ever saw was likely to be Mary Poppins. Dancing Penguins, Dick Van Dyke, Julie Andrews, not me. First movie my parents ever took me to, God bless them, was Bonnie and Clyde. Wow. And so wow. I decided to set I decided to set this book in the 1960s, um, and I was off off and running. And I loved researching Hollywood in the 1960s almost as much as I loved researching the Serengeti in the 1960s. So let's drill down on that, because that's one of the things I wanted to talk about. You picked really transitional times in both worlds. Yeah. Hollywood, that was the death of the studio system, and it died slowly. It was a, a huge transition. And all over Africa, it was post-colonial or very nearly post-colonial and whatever stage of that. Yeah. So it was kind of a magic moment in the two worlds you chose. And was that intentional? Yes, it absolutely was. Um, and I even wanted another proxy war that wasn't the Vietnam War because I'd written this book called The Red Lotus, which is in part about the legacy of the Vietnam War. So I was literally just, you know, spinning a globe in my mind thinking, where can I have a U.S.-Russia proxy war? Because even before Putin 
went full-on Dr. Evil and attacked Ukraine. The fact is, um, Russia has always been a source of both unbelievable mystery to me, unbelievable horror, and when you think of things like the Bolshoi Ballet, certain Russian cinema, the great novelists, Russian love. I mean, I have no idea how that country always has a James Bond villain in the Kremlin. <laughs> it fascinates me. So I glommed on to the Congo and Seren the Serengeti um, as this would be the place for the quote-unquote proxy war where I can have not just evil animals, because I don't view animals as evil as, at all, but, you know, hyenas, leopards, lions, but humans who are up to no good. To that point, survival is a really pervasive theme at every level in every single group that you have present. The, the, the group of, of tourists who come from Hollywood, the Russian who, who come to kidnap them, the locals who are the tour guides, the animals. So you've woven together this kind of web of survival. Uh, talk about that. Yeah. Um, and I also want to talk about, because you raised this a moment ago, um, Africa was also a great place to explore, not simply because of the proxy wars, but because, as you said, post-colonial, the transition. And the great thing about Tanzania is the first political leaders of the new nation understood that the Serengeti was, to quote, I believe his name is Harold Evans, the last great place on earth. And they understood that this needs to be preserved, not simply for the animals, but for the human beings, and that this is about as rich tourism as you can get. And I don't mean rich in terms of glamping. I mean rich in the beauty of the natural world. So, um, when I was anticipating the notions of survival, to go back to your most recent question, every day I was in the Serengeti. I had a great time with the tour guides. These individuals who spent their lives in Arusha, Kilimanjaro, and the Serengeti, asking them about all the ways that idiot Westerners can get themselves killed. <laughs> and for the first three or four days, I think they thought I was the ultimate ghoul. And one of, one of the guides was in his late 70s. And I really think there were moments when he was thinking, I've been doing this forever. And I've never had a human being this likely to be a serial killer <laughs> on my watch. But eventually my wife and I, you know, did win him over and understood that really is just a novelist asking questions. Um, but the stories that they would tell me about um, all of the ways that they had seen people make mistakes. And the fact is, a safari is perfectly safe if you listen to your tour guides, if you listen to the rangers you will not get hurt. Where you can make mistakes are, and these are the examples he gave me, the idiot Americans who, once they were zippered into their tents, decided they needed a nightcap. And so they left their tents. 
to go to the bar tent. Because, you know, every glamping safari's got the bar tent. It was only the next morning that you could see all around the human footprints, the footprints of a lion. And those are the kinds of stories that they would tell me, you know, as we're just watching um, hippopotamuses in the sun in the river, or we are watching zebras grazing. And they would tell me yet another story about an idiot American or an idiot, you know, um, couple from Britain. So you live in Vermont, and my husband and I have a house in the Catskills. And there I learned the hard way that if a bear can get his head in your window, he can get his shoulders in the window. And we left a kitchen window open oh to drive down to Newark Airport to pick up the kids many years ago. And that bear had a field day in the kitchen. Cabinet doors gone. But the trail of food going up the hillside was the most interesting. And I wondered, did that bear, was the bear smart enough to hand all those packages of food to another bear all night long like Yogi and Boo Boo? Yep, yep. Was the bear smart enough to throw the packages out before he left, or did he go in and out all night? Do you know, Chris? Do you know the answer to that I know, I know, I know. We live in the woods. My wife and I live in the woods, and we see bears with some frequency, yeah. either 50 yards away at the compost bin, or walking up to the screened-in porch, intellectually curious. The only time our dog barks is when there's a bear. Um, so I don't know the answer to that, nor do I know why Smokey Bear doesn't get a shirt and Winnie the Pooh doesn't get pants. <laughs> the things, the, the pervasive questions. Going back to Hollywood, so you took a classic Hollywood social structure, which is like yeah. a royal social structure. It's that of an entourage. You have a central person, in this case a female movie star, and the people who orbit around her. It's very common in Hollywood. I, I'm sure that's why you chose it, but was it fun? And how did you pick the members of her entourage? When I was reading Hollywood fan magazines from the 1950s and the 1960s, I was astonished at not only the stories about the actors, who any reader of these magazines would recognize and know by name, but occasionally the story about the manager, the agent, the publicist, the spouse. And it was from those magazines that I crafted my movie star, Katie Barstow's Entourage. So in the Serengeti Withers, of course, her new husband, her brother and sister-in-law, her beloved publicist, her beloved agent, um, and all of these characters are largely from my imagination, with the exception of Katie Barstow, who really is my visions of Natalie Wood or Elizabeth Taylor behind the curtain. Mm -hmm. Each of whom, as Katie is, had, had been a child star. Yeah. Each of those women, and, and it is a very rare thing, as you would all know in Hollywood, for the child star to become a successful adult actor or actress. It, it almost is unheard of. 
because children are hired for very transient qualities. I mean, look at Macaulay Culkin, mm. whose brother is now, his fame has eclipsed him. Yeah. So speaking of newsreels and clips, you start each chapter with a wonderful little conceit. And because I read so many books, and I'm not a speed reader, I read every single word, uh, one of the things that has sped up my reading is I read the book in bed at night, but I do the audio, audio in my car, and your audios are always fantastic. Many so, of which are narrated by my daughter. I know. I think she's just, her name is Grace Experience, yeah. and she has just a gorgeous voice, and you should follow her on social media, follow what she's doing. She does plays, she does audio. She's wonderful. Thank you. But these chapters start with these clips, like Hollywood gossip, like uh, Hedda Hopper or Luella Parsons, kind of, you know, what Katie Barstow's up to, or rumor has it. And in the audio, they're delivered in just the right cadence and clip vernacular. And that must have been fun. And how did you, it's an organizing principle of the book. How did you decide to do that? What a beautiful term, an organizing principle. It is. The reason why each chapter begins with a clip, from, begins with a quote from the Los Angeles Times or the Hollywood Reporter is because I wanted my readers to always remember who's who on the safari. The book is filled with third-person subjective chapters from the perspective of publicist Reggie Stout, from the perspective of actress Carmen Tedesco from the perspective of agent um, Peter Merrick. So all of these chapters begin with a quote from a newspaper about that character. So you instantly remember, oh, Carmen, she's Katie's best friend and an actor. Likewise, the book actually begins with the guest list on the safari, rather like a family tree or the start of a play. So you never have to remember, have to fight to remember who is this character because you've got the cliff notes beginning the chapter. Well, and it does that for you, but it's also delightful because it is tone setting. Mm. And it reminds you that even though you're in very, a very dark situation, adrift in Africa, this is who these people are back in their real lives. It's a little bit like the Wizard of Oz. It yeah. keeps yanking you back to Kansas a little bit so and, you know where you are. And very, very intense readers will even say, oh, wait, that was foreshadowed in the Los Angeles Times. Or, oh, I see what he did there in terms of how this person just got killed. Right, right. Very clever of you. So... You gave, <laughs> you gave Katie and her brother a really rotten childhood. Yeah. And in the guise of a very glamorous childhood. They are children of, of Broadway stars. And um, why that? How did you come up with that? And how does it really serve your character development? Mm -hmm. I love theater, too. I mentioned how much I love TV and movies, but I mean, I've got a new play opening in February at George Street Playhouse called The Club. I love theater. 
Um, and sometimes how there's nothing but autobiographic minutia behind my most quote-unquote literary decisions. So, Katie Barstow's brother is often imprisoned by his parents in a closet. And it's a terrifying closet to him in the Upper West Side in their you know, beautiful, beautiful Dakota-esque apartment. <coughs> Excuse me. And that, apart, that closet is based entirely on my late mother-in-law's closet in her Manhattan apartment where she never, ever, ever imprisoned her four daughters. Good. But, but architecturally, it's the very same closet. Um, Katie's, one of the scarring moments of Katie and her um, brother's childhood is when their mother decides in a sort of drunken debacle, she is going to take them trick-or-treating on October 30th because that is the night she can. So the night before Halloween, she's bringing her two children on the elevator lines to all of the apartments in the building where no one is ready for them and the costumes are a disaster. And of course, that too is some autobiographic minutia in the stories that my own lovely bride endured one day when her father had two of his four daughters on October 30th. But they go back to their mom on the 31st, so he is going to take them trick-or-treating on October 30th, come hell or high water. Well, what you convey, and that is a very painful scene, is that intense embarrassment and yeah. humiliation of childhood when a parent is leading you into something that you just don't want to be involved Oh, my in. wife is so amazing <laughs> and so resilient and so astonishing and so funny. But sometimes when she tells me stories about her childhood, I think, how did social services not find you and your sisters? <laughs> were her parents involved with the theater? or No. Nope. No. They were not. No. Nope. So... Within the entourage, you have very distinctive individual characters, very distinctive. You have three marriages. Uh, talk a little bit about the puzzle pieces of all these individuals and how they come together to make this whole that's going to play out in what goes wrong. Yeah. The principal mystery of the book is pretty simple. Who's going to be alive at the end? But within that big mystery, Deborah's alluding to a lot of other smaller mysteries, such as why in the world have Russians kidnapped a Hollywood entourage? What do they want? Secondly, as anyone who's watched such wonderful TV shows as The Americans, for instance, knows, um, the KGB in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s didn't take prisoners. Um, and there's always a mole. So in this entourage, one of the smaller mysteries is, okay, does somebody on this safari know more than he, she, or they is telling us? 
as readers or as members of the safari. And uh, when I'm writing a book, I have no idea where it's going. Do you outline? No. Do you know how it's going to end? No. Me neither. I'm glad to hear that. No, I have no I feel so much better. You know, this is why Deborah and I get along, because we <laughs> don't outline, and we have no idea how our books are going to end. So when I started this book, all I have is that vague premise. A bunch of people in Hollywood suddenly in the Serengeti kidnapped or trying not to get eaten because they suddenly have no guides, no rangers, no guns, and they're in the middle of the Serengeti. Um, so when I started this book... I was working with that premise while doing my research, while reading about the KGB, reading about the CIA, and um, fun fact, for those of you who will be reading the book, yes, the CIA really did some unbelievably crazy experiments with LSD in the 1960s, um, and I just had a great time trying to discover who's who. Right, and a lot of it plays out in these beautifully written one-on-one -on -one scenes. That you know, politics makes strange bedfellows. Well, so does being kidnapped. You get, <laughs> you end up in deep conversations, one-on-one, -on -one with not always the likeliest person. And one of my favorites is Carmen. And I love Carmen. Reggie at the tree. Was yes, that, Carmen and that is my yeah. favorite scene in the book. Yeah, it, it's, it is very heart piercing. We'll take a short break and be back with the Ocean House Author Series here on WCRI. And we're back with the Ocean House Author Series on WCRI. Let's go back. So you have a general idea you start down the path and you sit down every day and things are revealed to you. Do you ever have to go back and say, now that I realize this is happening, I need to go back and tweak a little bit there. I didn't lead up to it properly. I've taken a new direction. Or are you just full speed ahead? All the time I have to go back. Oh, thank God. All the time. <laughs> see, see how much better I feel? Oh, yeah. This is like therapy up here. Yeah. Thank you for coming. Oh, <laughs> I usually write about 50 pages on a computer, print it out, edit it by hand using a fountain pen because fountain pens are messy and they demand that I think more slowly, work more carefully to find the perfect adjective or synonym, you know, whether it's the blood, is it claret, is it burgundy, you know. Um, and then I will input those changes write another 50 or so pages, print out 100 pages and go through the entire exercise, and I, at some point I'll have an epiphany where I'll figure out, oh, this is what the book is about. This is how the book ends. And I will go back to square one and essentially start again. Well, I have to say, your description of your process is the closest I've ever heard to my own process. That's why we're kindred spirits. That I'm kind of stunned. I, I was doing a radio interview when Reef Road was coming out with um, someone in, I'm going to say Kansas, but I don't know where. And they always ask you if you're a plotter or a pantser. Do you <laughs> plot it all out or fly by the seat of your pants? Not this guy. He said, do you chart your course with 
a map or a compass? And I thought, oh, that's a better question. I have a, I don't have a map, but I have a compass. I kind of, I'm following something. Yeah. And I like, I thought it was actually more nuanced. I like that a lot. Yeah. So you can use that. <laughs> I will quote you. I will certainly quote you on that. So Russia, uh, you started writing this in 19. Putin was Putin then. He's gone even more Putin-esque as we've gone along. But you pointed out that Russia has always been very much the way it is uh, with a James Bond hero. Villain. In the, villain in the Kremlin. A villain, not a hero. So talk about your knowledge of all that and your research process. How did you get that right? Was it the Americans or? Okay, the... first of all, fun fact. Yeah. I've actually given a speech in the Kremlin. And it was December 2014. And my wife was photographing in Cuba. And Putin had just invaded Crimea and we had just tanked the ruble. And so here I'm posting images of me in the Kremlin, and my wife is posting images of her in Cuba, and everyone thought we were spies on our social networks. I bet. Um, I'm Armenian. I'm Armenian-American. Yes. yes. And so prior to Putin's invasion of Ukraine, prior to the pandemic, I actually flew Aeroflot a lot, because the two best ways to get to Armenia are Air France and Aeroflot. And Aeroflot, you know, in like 2012 through 2019, had Game of Thrones on its video, and Air France didn't. So, um, <laughs> I have my priorities. Um, but I've always been fascinated because Armenia was a Soviet republic until the Soviet Union collapsed. So, when you, when you go to Armenia, Everyone speaks Russian, Armenian, French, and in Yerevan, a lot of English. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's part of my obsession with Russia and part of my interest in Russia because when you're in Yerevan, which is one of the most beautiful cities in the world, um, there's a boatload of 1920s and 1930s Russian-esque, big block proletariat architecture. Right, right. And so the Turkish genocide was in 19... 1915 to 1923. But there were plenty... That long? Yeah, the, the bulk of it is 1915 through 1917, but um, Ataturk essentially finished in terms of ethnic cleansing what the Young Turks had started. Mm -hmm. The fact is, um, in 1915, there were two million Armenians in the Ottoman Empire. In 1924, there were about 300 in what is today Musada, and about 50,000 in Constantinople, and today there are about 60,000 in Istanbul. Mm -hmm. That's it. Wow, extraordinary. It, it, that, have you written about that? I have, yeah. I have. I've written about the Armenian genocide in my novel, The Sandcastle Girls, and in so many articles for the Boston Globe and the New York Times and the Washington Post. And it's not acknowledged yet, right? It is everywhere now but Turkey and Azerbaijan. Right, right, right. And they won't in the lifetime in, of anyone in this room. Right. 
Well, I, that's going to tie me into your writing as a whole. One of the things I so love about your writing, and that I would say the same about someone like Joyce Carol Oates. Oh, I love Joyce's work. Ah, and you are bold and brave, and you write what you want to write, and you're not imprisoned by genre. And that is so completely refreshing, and it makes each one of your books an exciting experience. So how did you get the nerve to do that? First of all, you're right. My goal is never to write the same book twice. I've written thrillers, historical fiction, what people call literary fiction. I literally write whatever is going to make me happy in the morning. Because if you are in this business, um, especially, I mean, okay, there were points in my life when I left advertising, when my wife and I were so poor that one month we sold all of our living room furniture in Vermont <laughs> to pay the mortgage. Another month we sold all of our dining room furniture so our infant daughter and the two of us wouldn't be able to pay our health insurance for another month. Um, writing for you, for me, you know, it's, it's a labor of love. And if I'm not enjoying what I'm writing, then you're not going to enjoy reading it. And when I have a premise, and it's fun, I'm going to write it. So, you know, so in the last few years, we've had um, um, The Flight Attendant, which is marketed as a thriller, but it's a real slow burn thriller. You know, it's a character study about an alcoholic hot mess who's really trying to keep it together, um, aware that someone is likely to kill her, but she doesn't know whom. Hour of the Witch, is historical fiction about the first divorce in North America for domestic violence. Um, the Lioness is a thriller, but again, it's a deep character study where every single chapter is interrupted by, by the character's childhood or what their demons are or why their marriage is a mess that has nothing to do with a leopard that's about to eat him or her. Um, my next book, The Princess of Las Vegas, is about a Princess Diana tribute show performer at the world's crappiest casino in Las Vegas who gets involved with money laundering um, and her sister and her sister's suddenly adopted 13-year-old foster child. Fascinating. <laughs> And the book after that is set in the Civil War. So, it, I, I mean, that is certainly why I do it. I, you know, yeah. it is a second career for me, and I wouldn't do it if I had to kind of write to a formula, and I, it just, that's what keeps me going. Hour of the Witch, one of the things that, I, I love that book, and I had oh, such you. a profound strike of clarity about who we are as Americans, as I'm reading this book. It's set in 16, what, 1662. 1662. And this woman in Boston is petitioning the town magistrates for a divorce. And of course, it doesn't go well for her, as you, you can well imagine. And it's a wonderful book, but I came away thinking, we are absolutely true 
to our heritage in this country. I mean, we're at a moment where everyone is sitting in moral judgment of everybody else. We're complete Puritans. We're, it's, we have different subject material that we're all judging each other on, but we're still doing it. And I thought, well, but maybe that's true about Russians. <laughs> maybe that the reason they always have the James Bond villain, villain in the Kremlin is there's something in people that there's a truism. I think a lot of us, we are both, we are all prisoners of our DNA, and to a certain extent, we are prisoners of our cultural backgrounds. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is a reason, um, you know, why we fight the fights we fight. When I was writing Hour of the Witch, um, the Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court hearing was occurring, and I knew instantly, instantly, that somebody among those men, because they're all men, on Boston's Court of Assistance in 1662, in all of their robes, in the same way that certain male senators looked at Christine Blasey Ford and were going to say, you are a nasty woman. And I literally took that from the Kavanaugh hearings. And you know that the Kavanaugh hearings took that from um, the three-time indicted, soon-to-be fourth indicted former president. Yes. Yes, and here we are with that. So a subject that has fascinated me of late is epigenetics. If you've read The Many Daughters of Afong Moy by Jamie, Jamie Ford. Jamie Ford, oh my God, a treasure. It's a, an extraordinary book which deals with epigenetics. And my latest book, which is based on the real murder of my real mother's best friend in 1948 Pittsburgh, is a very deep probe into generational trauma. And I do think we carry these things. The Armenian Genocide. I mean, there are sweeping cultural uh, scars, wounds that we carry, and then there are the more individual ones. But I think that's why there's, there's no new story under the sun. There are just new flavors to mm. those stories. Which brings me to you write women, you write men. We are in a cultural climate where there's a conversation afoot about cultural appropriation. Who gets to write what and whom? And again, you're bold and you do it, and I think it's very important. I always say you wouldn't really want to read one of my books if it just had 15 middle-aged white women in it. How interesting would that be? Yeah. You have to write other people. So how do you do it? Yeah. You know, my daughter, who's much smarter than I am, said something after reading the rough draft of my novel, Close Your Eyes, Hold Hands, and I think she was a freshman in college. She said, Dad, take this as a compliment, because I meet it that way. But I think your sweet spot as a writer is seriously messed up young women. <laughs> and she's right, except for the fact that I've, um, I also write seriously messed up middle-aged women as well. Um, there are some voices where I think it's fine in 2023 for me to be writing the book. I have no problem writing across gender. Um, you know, the Princess of Las Vegas is from the perspective of two sisters in Las Vegas, you know, both of whom were from Vermont originally. And I don't think there will be any objections to my doing that. But I also understand 
that there are some subjects it's no longer my right to write about. And I'll give you two examples. I wrote a book in the year 2000 called Transistor Radio, and it's a transgender love story. And it has four first-person narrators. Um, cis woman, cis man, cis woman's daughter, and um, a human transitioning from male to female. And I'm not sure that it would be okay for me to write that book now. For me, I don't think I would feel good about writing that book now. Because we need to allow trans voices to tell their stories. The lioness has um, white Americans, black Americans, and black Africans, all with voices. And I think that was fine. Um, but one of the things that I did is I had an authenticity reader read the book and to tell me, are there any parts of this book that as a cis white male of a certain age, I just missed, mm -hmm. you know, make me smarter. And she was great. You know, she found a few points in the lioness where she said, um, I know you meant nothing by this expression, but I think you can approach it differently. And she found at least three or four of those expressions in the book, and I changed those three or four sentences. We'll take a short break and be back with the Ocean House Author Series here on WCRI. And we're back with the Ocean House Author Series on WCRI. I know you all have questions, and a microphone is going to come around the room to you. Since we're on the radio, it would be great if you wait for the microphone to ask your questions and have one right Look at all those hands. Front. I know, very shy hands. They always start off slowly and get, get going. So I'll start with the transistor radio. Um, and what's your name? Book. Linda. Hi, Duran. Linda. Hi. So I'm a nurse and a therapist, and so I read it when it came out. And all I knew about trans people were signs, symptoms, um, treatment. To my knowledge, I had never met a trans person. So what I want to say to you is thank you, because you made trans people people. Thank you. Oh, Linda, thank you for saying that. I'm honored. Chris, I just love all your books. Thank you. Um, but I have to ask, I know you said that you don't know where you're going when you begin, but where was it in the double bind that you came up with that ending? Because if it, if it surprised us, it had to have surprised you as well. It was a shocker. Okay. Um, and what is your name? Fran. Fran. Okay, Fran is asking a question about the double bind. The double bind um, is a novel about a Vermont social worker who believes that she has found the bastard son of Jay Gatsby and Daisy Faye Buchanan in her homeless shelter in Vermont. And I'm not going to ruin the ending for any of you, of course, and Fran, you were so great to be so careful about that. God bless you. Thank you. I began with that premise that I just outlined, but I didn't know what the ending was until I was interviewing a friend of mine who's a psychiatrist about um, a particular mental illness that would figure into that novel, 
and we were sitting in his office at the Vermont State Hospital, and his office is on the other side of all of the electrical doors that close behind you. But you could hear them close. And when I heard one of the doors close, something clicked, and I knew how the book was going to end. Mmm. Mmm. I love that. The Red Lotus. Yes. So I kept looking back, saying, published in 2020. Inspired by COVID, too close, coincidence. And what's your name? Karen. Karen. Karen wants to know about my novel, The Red Lotus, which was published, wait for it, March 17th, 2020, and is about a race against time against a pandemic. Um, no, I wrote that book um, in 19, most of that book in 1918 into 1919. For example, my wife and I went on the research bike tour in Vietnam in November of 2018. Um, I will tell you this, one of the people I interviewed was a great epidemiologist in New York City who was all over 60 minutes in the news cycle in the first half of 2020 um, because he kept saying to me, why are you obsessed with setting this book in Vietnam partly? Why not Wuhan, China? That's where the real virus is going to come from in our next pandemic. But no, just a coincidence. Wow. Yep, on Friday, this is classic. On Friday, March 13th, 2020, we canceled the Red Lotus book tour. My wife, my wife had an art show due to open the fourth week in March. They said we're going to postpone it a couple of months. It was supposed to open July 12th of 2023, but Montpelier in the gallery flooded right after they hung the work. <laughs> Someday. And my daughter, a young actor, was on an Amtrak train to Boston to go into rehearsal for Ada and the Aid for a play called Ada and the Engine. And the director said, okay, I'm sorry you're already on the train, but go back to New York. We're gonna postpone a few weeks. Never open, with, at least with my daughter in it. Friday, my, March 13th was D-Day. It was my granddaughter's first birthday. So I was very keyed into that day. We, we had a group in Florida and there was this craze for us at a minor level, because I, I was on a book tour, but I was pausing, and we were like, do we have anybody over for cake? What exactly is happening yeah. here? And we all know what happened there. Yeah. I don't know if any of you have noticed, some of you heard me speak before. I wonder if he's laryngitis. His voice is a little different. I've got a weird long haul COVID side effect, which affects my voice. Because, you know, I, we opened this play Midwives, um, in January of 2020, cast members got sick, spouses got sick, my play agent got so sick, she left the business, my wife got really sick. I was asymptomatic, but one week, one day my voice was fine, and then another day my voice is just gone. But I've got a wonderful voice therapist, a former Israeli Forces Special Commando, um, and my, you know, so I function and I'm great. Does he try to get you to use your voice from a, a different place? She does. She, she. See, and I made a terrible no, 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 no. gender-based no. assumption. No, he, no, no. She. She's got, I've got to tell you one story about her because I love her. I just love her to death. She's so smart and so wonderful. The first day we worked together, it's November of 2021. And I had virtually no voice, even that late. We, you know, we stumped the stars at all the ENTs in four states. And anyway, and she said to me, Chris Bojellian, I need to tell you something. You say this loss of voice is 
somatic reaction to grief, all of the people who've died, the pandemic, your wife's career, your daughter's career, so much sadness, but Chris Bojelian, I did my homework on you. August 12, 1973, you are the little boy playing the Little League Baseball in Connecticut. Me, that day, I watched my beloved fiance go into battle where he's killed. And what did I do? I went into battle right behind him. No, Chris Bogell, you don't know grief. Now, one of the other things that she taught me is that I often have better voice clarity when I mimic other voices. For example, I used to do a great John Mulaney. And sometimes I like to mimic her. And she knows I do this. And once after hearing me mimic her, she said, Chris Bojelian, I need to tell you something. You are a good writer, but you are a crappy mimic. What, you think I sound like Russian hooker? Oh, that's funny. You have one? Okay. Yeah. Hi. Um, regarding the flight attendant, um, two quick questions. A, were you involved with the adaptation to TV? And B, were you happy with the way that they... Sure. Uh, and what's your name? Bobby. Bobby wants to know two <laughs> things. Was I involved with the adaptation of The Flight Attendant? And was I happy with it? Um, no, I was virtually not involved. It is all the brilliance of Steve Yockey, HBO Max, Warner, um, his writer's room... I was on set a couple times before the pandemic. Um, they had to shut down filming, of course, in March because of the pandemic. But my principal contribution when I was on the set was enjoying the coffee and the bagels at craft services. <laughs> and I love it. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I mean, Kaylee Cuoco is wonderful. Um, the cast that Max and Warner assembled is perfect. I loved it, and I mean, it's just, I had so much fun watching it being made. I had so much fun watching it on air. I'm just thrilled. I'm so glad to hear you say that, because I love it, too. I think it is outstanding. Yeah. It's crisp and brilliant and different. And just, you kind of have to fasten your seatbelt and go for the ride. I'm, I'm really glad yeah. to hear that they didn't upset you. No, and Kaylee's a dream. I mean, I knew from the Big Bang Theory, everyone knows that she's got unbelievable comedic chops. But one of the things I sensed from our, you know, our early connections on the book was how much she understood Cassie Bowden, my alcoholic mess of a flight attendant. And if you look at the first six minutes of the first episode of season one, you can get a sense of Kaylee Cuoco's tremendous, dramatic acting chops because, um, you, early on in like minute three, you see her as the party girl in her New York City apartment giving a high five to a guy who thinks they're going to have sex, but she's saying, no, you, you got to go. I've got to get on a flight and gives him a high five and kicks him out. And it's really funny and charming. And then three minutes later, she's in a different airlines crew van going to the Bangkok airport as the sirens pass the van, going to the hotel where there's a dead guy and she is weeping uncontrollably. And just get a sense of, she's so good. Okay, hi Chris, my name is Jess and I'm a high school English teacher. So hi, on- My dog is named Jesse. Oh, 
Oh, that's fantastic. So my mom calls me Jesse. So there you go. Um, so I have two questions for you on behalf of my students. So my first question is, how would you describe yourself back in high school as an English student? And then my second question is, what advice do you have for aspiring writers? Okay, for your students, first of all, I went to five different schools in three states in six years. And in my memory, I was always the new kid and friendless because I didn't know any of the social norms. What I've since discovered is that self-perception as an adolescent, unless you're Amanda Gorman, <laughs> is worthless because you know nothing. Every time I've run into high school or middle school friends you know, from that era, it's quite clear that I had friends and I fit in just fine. And so the first thing I would say is when you look in the mirror and you think you're friendless, um, you're probably not. You're probably fine. And the second thing I would tell all aspiring young writers is to read a ton, to know that the first draft is not the last draft, to read in whatever genres you love. If you love graphic novels, read them and write them. If you love romance, read romance and write that. If you love literary fiction, read that and write that and have a really, really thick skin. I amassed 250 rejection slips before I sold one single word. Great advice. Hi, Chris. Uh, Mary Beth. Mary Beth, it's great to see it's you. It's great to see you. Mary Beth, I think, and Mary, some of Mary Beth's friends have been to every single Connecticut yes. and Rhode Island event Sue's I have here too. ever done. <laughs> Going back right. to the Sandcastle Girls in July of 2012. Yeah, so Sue's here wow. too. There's two of us today. Thank you both for being yeah. here. It's great to see you both. First is a comment and the second is a question. First, um, uh, and the, the, the lady who first spoke put it so beautifully, but I know when you said, you know, transistor radio, you might not write that today, but you, you and John Irving have been writing about marginalized people for a very long time and, and have taught me about compassion and empathy. So thank you for doing that. Very good, uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for putting me in the same sentence with John Irving. <laughs> <laughs> My question is, um, like Ms. Royce, I noticed uh, you know, the excerpts at the top of your chapters. And for me, they really amped up the tension between the public and the private with the characters. Oh, interesting. Um, and there was a scene very early on between Felix and Peter, where Felix is trying to impress Peter by name dropping his father. And what I think you do so well, and what I'm curious about is, we know, we, we know how to write public, feature, public figures, but you also really get the private figure. And I'm wondering, how have you done that? Are you eavesdropping on conversations at restaurants, or how are you, how are you negotiating the tension between, in a single person, between the public and the private, so beautifully? Thank you for that. Okay, first of all, Mary Beth just made a great point about the lioness, which I think is valid and smart, and I'm gonna, I love it, um, but I'd never consciously thought about that I was doing it, but I clearly did it. 
and that is that I used those Hollywood Reporter and LA Times snippets at the start of chapters to illuminate the public versus the private. So you see, for example, yeah, in this case, this screenwriter um, and how tormented he is by the fact his father is a huge Hollywood director and he is a lower tier bottom feeding screenwriter who hasn't made it the way his father has. Um, so that's really interesting. Thank you for pointing that out. How do you do the private versus the public? A lot of it. Um, it's what Deborah and I think, I think what Deborah and I do with just our books. In, in any book you really love, I think, whether it's a John Irving novel or one of Deborah's novels, there's what the character reveals to the people around him, her, them in the book, and what the reader knows about the character's demons. And all of us in this room, we've got our demons. Um, and in a novel, when you've got... Somebody once said that novels make us better people because they make us more empathetic. And I think that's really true. And part of that empathy comes from the fact that in a novel, we see the demons that we don't see among the 150 or 120 of us in this room right now. But if we were writing a novel about us, we would get those demons. I think we have time for one, maybe two more questions. We've gone over, but these questions are all so good. My name's Joanne. Hi, Joanne. Um, do you have a, I'm not familiar with it, but do you have a first reader? Do you use the same person to first read your work, or is it different people? Um, I have three first readers. My lovely bride, Victoria Bluer, our amazing daughter, Grace Experience, and my editor going back to 2010, Jenny Jackson, a name that many of you might know because she published her own first novel this March, Pineapple Street, oh, and yes. it's fantastic. So, yes. you know, give it up for Jenny Jackson. Um, they are my first readers, but every book also then has my quote-unquote relevant experts. So, you know, somebody I seem to use a lot is a retired FBI guy named Jerry Bammel, who, you know, was instrumental in The Flight Attendant, The Red Lotus, The Forthcoming, The Princess of Las Vegas. Um, for my Civil War book, you know, that Civil War historians or a guy named Ken Borey, who's an expert on, wait for it, Civil War medicine and bone saws. <laughs> and every oh. book I've got, you know, and you can see them in the acknowledgments. One more, one more, and then we, Chris will be in the back. You can ask questions. Hi, Chris. My name's Annie. Um, Hi, Annie. I was wondering, because it was so memorable to me, but was there something that inspired you or you found a, a, a reason to write midwives for? Sure. Um, what was the inspiration for midwives? There was a midwife six months after my wife's and my daughter was born. It was a perfectly fine obstetric delivery. Actually, my, I would, my wife would quibble with fine. It was 22 hours. <laughs> but six months later, we were at a dinner party. And at the dinner party was the local independent or lay midwife, Carol Gibson Warnock, who's just a delight. And Carol said, well, if you'd used me 
You could have had Grace in your bedroom and you could have caught her. And I'd never heard the verb catch used in the context of birth. And I grew really, really interested. And I will tell you that originally midwives, if you look at the first chapter and most of the second chapter, and forget the prologue, which I wrote much later when I knew what the book was about, you would say, oh, this is a gently comic novel about a hippy-dippy midwife's OBGYN daughter. Because that's what it was going to be. But about a month into the book, my mom was diagnosed with lung cancer, and it was terminal, um, it's clear. And my family does many things well, but death is not among them. And the book took one of those unexpected left-hand turns. And all of a sudden, as I'm interviewing midwives, I'm not simply asking them, have you ever had a baby die? I'm suddenly asking them, ghoul that I am, have you ever had a mother die? And most of these midwives said to me, dear God, no, are you kidding? But a few said, yes, it happens, but it happens to OBGYNs too. And then I was asking these midwives, okay, if you ever had a mom die, what would you do? And most of the midwives said to me, what do you mean, what would I do? But one midwife said to me, what choice would I have? I don't carry a scalpel. I'd get the sharpest knife in the house. And I said, and do what? And she said, save the baby. You've only got a few minutes. And I knew what the book was about. Wow. On that note, that dramatic note, we are going to segue. I cannot thank you enough, Chris. Oh, Deborah. Extraordinary. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this special broadcast of the Ocean House Author Series with Deborah Goodrich Royce. Please tune in each month as we'll bring you a new Ocean House Author Series highlighting nationally best-selling and award-winning authors in a salon-style conversation. Hosted by Ocean House owner, actress, and best-selling author, Deborah Goodrich Royce. The WCRI is pleased to be partnering with the Ocean House to bring you this ongoing series highlighting the best and the brightest of the literary world. Thank you once again for joining us. And in the words of Margaret Atwood, in the end, we all become stories. <laughs>